Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tresseter Burns. We're at White Rose Estate. Uh, it's December 12th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank Tresseter. you for having me. Uh, start with the most important question, the one we always start with, which is why wine? Absolutely. So <clears throat> it's sort of going back. I'll sort of go back into my background a little bit. Sure. Uh, in that um, my first career out of college was working in technology. Uh, so I worked uh, for about 10 years in, between New York and San Francisco, working at uh, Dot-coms, the uh, last five years was with Yahoo in San Francisco. Um, spent a lot of time, it was a wonderful, wonderful few years. You know, worked on these projects that were essentially massive builds, right? Mm-hmm. For websites for some of our largest uh, clients. Websites that were used by millions of people, but uh, millions of people that I never got a chance to meet, right? <laughs> and these websites sort of came and went. They're very ethereal in nature. So after a while, I think one of the appeals for wine was that it was something tangible, right? And that sort of opportunity to be able to share with family, friends, and ultimately our customers you know, mm-hmm. something that I had made, you know, to sort of enjo- take some enjoyment in that. Sure. And that, uh, I think there's something to be said for legacy as well. You know, it's a, it's a product that you can sort of leave and that years later, people can open those bottles and sort of look back and think about you when you were making it or sort of the process of making it, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's actually something that's pretty important here at White Rose. Uh, we lost our winemaker last year, Jesus Guillen. And... Um, I think there's just a wonderful legacy that we have of these years of wines that he worked to make here, these beautiful wines that he was known for and that White Rose became known for. Uh, and then every time we crack those wines, we get a chance to think about Jesus, right? And then so that's sort of, there's something to be said for that sort of uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. So when you were in tech, what was the bridge for you to start into wine? What, what was the cause? What, what did you do first? It's, a, it's sort of a roundabout way, right? So I knew, you know, after 10 years sitting in a cubicle, you know, I knew that there had to be something out there, right? One, and, and there was a, an appeal to using my hands. Um, I knew growing up that wine was somewhat of a, of a special beverage. My parents were big into wine. I grew up in Oregon, on the Oregon coast. They would, uh, every year or so, make their way down to California to to uh, purchase wine for the year, essentially. So they knew, you know, there was, I could tell that there was, this was a venerated beverage, right? That they, uh, there was something special about it. Uh, but it took me a long time before I actually sort of came into wine myself. So it really wasn't until I moved to San Francisco and spent a lot of time in California wine country, started to explore, started to learn the difference between the grapes, that kind of thing, that it sort of became an appeal. Um, at the same time, sort of years removed from my years in Oregon, you know, I'd been gone for about 15 years. Both of my parents were ill, and so I had the chance to move back home and sort of take care of them. Mm-hmm. They happen to live close to Oregon State, and I, you know, I might start to study this wine thing and sort of see if it sticks. And so I ended up spending three years at Oregon State, got a master's in enology there, did my research in Pinot Noir, uh, and then jumped into the industry in 2011. As you thought, maybe I'll do this wine thing. Uh-huh. How, how does that turn into like getting a master's degree? What, what about it appealed to you once you started? You know, there's a, a memory I have of going to Oregon State as a guy from San Francisco who works in tech and just showing up and, uh, hey, I'm, I'm interested in your program. 
And I remember uh, Professor James Kennedy at the time just sort of looking at me and he's like, you don't want to do this. He's like, <laughs> you know, you think this is just like sitting back, like swirling a glass and having a good time. He's like, this is a lot more work than you think it is. So it was kind of funny, right? I, I knew that there was a, a myth and romance around winemaking, you know, but I was very attracted to the, the science and learning the, you know, the uh, chemistry behind wine and sort of, and learning that process, you know, it's a fascinating process, you know, it's similar in some ways almost to working in tech because it takes years to, you know, to get a bottle of wine mm -hmm. to you or to, you know, to a friend. Um, and, you know, it took years, uh, you know, a year or more to build some of these huge websites, right? So it's about this sort of idea that you're sort of working towards this huge goal. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the process of learning it then and, and then getting into the industry. Uh, did you have a pretty good idea that winemaking was what you wanted to do or did you still have to kind of figure that out? I sort of figured that out at Oregon State. I wasn't sure, you know, there was, it was even, uh, um, I found some appeal in distilling as well. So I even built my own little still while I was in grad school, you know, so there was, a, there was definitely an appeal to sort of making something. <laughs> but I think that as time went on, there is something just fascinating about wine, right? And I think it's that chance that you have one shot a year, right? I'm always sort of envious of the brewers and the world and even the distillers because every day is a new day, right? You can make, you always have a chance to start over. Uh, but with wine, it sort of is a long buildup, right? It starts in January, February when we start to prune the vines. It builds up through the growing season, through harvest, the next year in barrel. And so, you, know, you get one shot, and I think there's something very special about that. It's terrifying, but it's also incredibly like rewarding at the same time. Mm -hmm. So tell me about after OSU then, get actually getting into the wine industry and where, where you started. Yeah, so I, um, you know, there's a, a great thing that Oregon State's doing and what drove my research is they, there's a lot of outreach with the wine community here. Uh, and so there's monthly meetings to sort of share pr uh, preliminary results, to also sort of um, get feedback from winemakers as far as what some research objectives should be, you know, what type of research can benefit the Oregon wine industry. And so through that monthly meeting, I was able to meet a number of winemakers here in mm -hmm. the Valley. Um, in 2011, I reached out to Anthony King, who was the winemaker at Lemelson uh, Vineyards, and uh, started as the harvest enologist uh, after I after I finished my master's defense. So, uh, ended up spending uh, four years there. So, uh, after that first harvest, I had sort of assumed that I would probably jump down to the southern hemisphere and do, you know just start to kind of up my harvest mm -hmm. count. You know, I was in my mid 30s at that point and. I uh, wanted to get a few more harvests under my belt, but uh, Anthony sort of asked if I could stick around. And in 2011, it was pretty difficult to get a full-time job in the wine industry. So we were just coming off that recession, you know. Uh, so I couldn't say no. And I had a chance to sort of, you know, have an incredible mentor for four years. So we had a great run there at Lemelson. Yeah. So tell me about that that process at Limelson. What what was uh, what was like being a harvest center? What was it like doing it like for the first time, like out of school? What, what was the experience like? It's an interesting one. You know, I tell people now they sort of ask you know my my path and and what they would do if you know if they had the same opportunity. And I, I sort of tell people like maybe go do the harvest internship first, right? Because I spent three years in school before I actually did my first commercial harvest. Had that commercial had that harvest gone poorly, you know that would have been a pretty big bet to sort of lose out on, right? So I. Uh, I definitely uh, tell folks, you know, go go do a harvest internship first, you know, and that's easy, right? I always sort of have enjoyed hiring folks that don't have experience in wine, right? That, uh, that there's something to be said for people that just work hard and then have no sort of uh, 
preconceptions about how wine is made, and so you can teach those people, right? That's a teaching opportunity, and I love teaching and sharing knowledge during the harvest experience. So uh, it, it's an easy opportunity to get. There's certainly always always places to make wine without experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So I tell people, do that, and then if you love it, stick with it, then go to school. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I sort of did the backwards way. But I was, I felt pretty confident that I'd made the right choice, and so it, it happened to work out. 2011 was a tough harvest, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I come out of school, we get into a very late, very cold vintage, incredibly cold year um, and so there were some challenges there right uh, we had a small staff that year just challenging uh, conditions Good morning no worries <laughs> um, but uh, it was a great harvest. I mean, we made some beautiful wines. Those are wines I still just sort of treasure. You know, I think anytime I see a flight of different vintages from different producers, I always am sort of gravitated towards 2011, 2010, those sort of old school, cold Oregon vintages. Like know? this year, so. Yeah, well, yeah. And this is, yeah, this is good. This is, um, this is a great vintage. I'm bullish on 2019, right? So I kind of, I think I like the kind of cooler vintages. They also tend to sort of require a little more work and focus in the winery. And, you know, I think there's something to be said that for that, whether the reward is in the struggle, but I think it's really just the fact that those tougher vintages tend to make the sort of very beautiful Oregon Pinot. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Anthony King as being kind of a first mentor in yeah. the industry. What did, you, what did you learn from him? What did you learn at Limbleson that, that you kind of carried forward with you? So have you guys had a chance to talk with Anthony yet? Working on that. Okay, I would highly recommend that. So Anthony is an incredibly scientific, analytical person, uh, just unbelievably intelligent, and wants to answer every possible question, right? So incredibly thorough. Uh, and then just an, a, an incredible artist, right? An incredible winemaker. Uh, so I learned a lot about focus, um, about technique, um, and about that sort of unrelenting sort of quest for betterment. You know, I think that every year Anthony makes wine, he's challenging assumptions or trying new things mm -hmm. and that sort of, and that, I think that idea of sort of, that should be a sort of limitless pursuit, right? That ultimately, like, you're going to try your whole life to make the best wine you possibly can and that you should always challenge your assumptions in that pursuit. It's very easy to get to a particular level and make a passable wine mm -hmm. and then just sort of hit cruise control maybe and sort of go on for a while. But that uh, I think that for a lot of us, there's an intellectual sort of pursuit here and that we always want to see what we can do to make a better, even better wine the next year, right? And that each, each year provides new challenges. So we should sort of meet them head on and sort of see what we can learn every vintage. So what happened, what's next after Limousin? What's the next yeah. step for you? So it was, it was pretty important for me to have a couple mentors. I wanted to make sure that when I got to a winemaking role that I felt fully prepared for mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. so after uh, Lemelson, I actually moved over to Robert Britton's mm -hmm. project in McMinnville mm -hmm. uh, and was the associate winemaker at Britton Vineyards for four years. So again, another great mentor. That's um, funny, both Robert and Anthony are UC Davis grads, sort of you know cut their teeth in the California wine industry before coming to Oregon. And I think it's you know, something that we should sort of, there is a lot of lineage from California to Oregon, and that's not a bad thing necessarily, right? There's a lot of knowledge that can come up from uh, from the years of, you know, decades more experience there. So we shouldn't sort of reject that out of hand because we sort of have it, uh, we're sort of given to an anti-California bias, right? But uh, but another wonderful mentor. I mean, Robert's an incredible winemaker. He's been doing this for what, 44 years now or something. So again, that sort of relentless pursuit. I mean, here 44 years in, still trying new things, still saying like, well, what if, you know? 
So uh, compare for me a little bit, compare contrast them a little bit as you were kind of building your winemaking philosophy, kind mm -hmm. of building your winemaking, like what you were going to do when you were on, when you were on your own or when yeah. you did have your first role. Compare contrast for me a little bit, Robert and Anthony, and kind of like I said, what you took away from them and, and what you brought as part of your own. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, I think that one thing you learn is you sort of experience different methods and it's great for especially like harvest interns to go to v different cellars and sort of compare and contrast is you sort of learn like what wine can take in some ways, right? So is it more oxygen, less oxygen, sort of different different approaches, right? And what where's your comfort zone in those? You know, are you comfortable using more oxygen or less oxygen? More oak, less oak, more elevage, less elevage time, right? So you sort of learn a little bit about sort of where you get in a comfortable zone there. They weren't too unlike or uh, dissimilar, but um, but there are just minor differences in approach, right? And so, but both of them were incredibly thorough, right? So we spent a lot of time analyzing, tasting, blending, those kind of things I think are very important, right? And then, you know, interestingly, I think that that time we spend blending, you know, we're looking at incredibly minute differences so that we do a lot of side-by-side -side comparisons that the cons consumer will never see and would be happy with either of those, <laughs> but that we need to make sure that we are giving, you know, creating the wine that we're the most satisfied with. So as you started, uh, as you got out of school and into the into the actual industry, tell me something that might have surprised you coming from the kind of educational background into the actual doing. Was there something about the about the process, about winemaking, or about the year that surprised you? Well, it's interesting. You know, one thing I really. Um really uh, respected and, and sort of I still talk about with the Oregon State program is that it's clearly not the sort of theoretical powerhouse that Davis is, right? It's not generating quite the same amount of research and I think that the UC Davis students I've worked with, I've always been quite jealous of the, um, of the theoretical background they've had, but what I loved about Oregon State was that you got a great practical background. So. Uh, because because that uh, winemaking is part of the food and uh, fermentation sciences program, you have that opportunity to make wine, but you also have the opportunity to make beer. There's no uh, distillation option. Uh, you can also make bread in a bread lab. There's all these incredible like opportunities to work in a production environment. And so we really took advantage of those. We'd make cheese on the weekends, we'd make bread on the weekends, we'd make beer on the weekends, you know. So that you kind of came out of that program, I think, with a pretty like hands-on knowledge, mm -hmm. and that's incredibly important. So while there's some scaling, right, you sort of learn a little bit about the scaling of winemaking, that the Oregon State education sort of really gives you a good sense of what it's going to take mm -hmm. to, to do a harvest. So I didn't feel too surprised there. Uh, but the real challenge is just in 2011, we're just trying to get things right, right? And mm -hmm. then sort of learning about what can happen. We had some high elevation vineyards that were giving us clusters that were see-through, you know? I mean, just like translucent. You know, there just was not enough color production that year, but that we made these beautiful wines, you know? So it took a while, and those wines were really nervous and tightly coiled when we released them, and people weren't necessarily jazzed about the 2011s, but they're awesome, right? You know, and, uh, those are the wines that I seek out now, so. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm just curious, uh, since that was such an interesting harvest, yeah. such an interesting tough harvest, what did you learn that you could do with grapes like that? Uh, you know, it's funny, yeah, 2011 was a good uh, example. I think 2013 mm -hmm. as well, that this idea that, you know, I think just 2013, after the rains, when we had, um, we had fruit that was just completely compromised and completely fallen apart in the, you know, in the vineyard, fruit flies, you know, these, these, these clusters were coming in under the sorting table and they already had problems, right? They already had vinegar volatility, that sort of thing. Uh, but it sort of made us focus. We, we sort of eliminated cold soak in some areas, got our fermentations going quickly, hot, you know, we sort of changed our winemaking a little bit, learned a lot during that harvest. And in the end, the wines were beautiful. And so I think what it told me or sort of 
I think the lesson was that we happen to be in a place that is perfect for growing Pinot Noir, right? So that even in the worst of times, we can still create good wines, which is not to say that every wine, every Oregon Pinot from 2013 was great, but that there were a lot of beautiful, great wines from that vintage. And 2011, same thing. So, you know, struggling to get to ripeness, everything seems green, these kind of things, but we ended up making these beautiful, and they were fairly ethereal after a while, uh, wines. So that, you know, I think it just says something about sort of, this is just divine ground for Pinot Noir production. <laughs> so. So tell me about your how describe your winemaking philosophy for me and, and what uh, what it maybe was when you thought or thought it was going to be uh -huh. and maybe what it is now. Yeah, it's funny. I think that you know, I think I when I left tech and, and sort of project management, I thought that I would sort of leave that world forever. But that of course winemaking is really a lot more logistical in nature than I thought. So and especially at a, a project like Roberts where we had five clients under one roof, we were doing lots of small lot winemaking. It was just a logistical slog. You know, we we. We'd have something on order of about 130 fermentations a season, right? That's a lot to uh, keep track of. So, you know, it was sort of the logistics part has been sort of interesting in that ultimately this is sort of project management, right? <laughs> Um, but the, the other, other parts of it, you know, I think understanding it from a scientific perspective, being vigilant, analyzing frequently, you know, monitoring your, your fermentations, your barrel aging, that sort of thing. Those are sort of, I think, self-evident maybe that the, those need to be done. So uh, I think that's just, you know, and then sort of taste and evaluate frequently, right? So, and those things always sound better than they really are, right? You know, so, I don't know, getting paid to taste wine sometimes isn't nearly as romantic as it sounds, you know? Like, even those, those blending sessions, I always say that's the hardest part of winemaking is those, just those hours-long slogs of blending sessions and really trying to find just these little tiny differences and sort of really dialing your blends to the perfect place, you know? I think that there's a dogma around sort of single block, single clone, single vineyard sort of thing, but that when it comes to blending, that's sort of, it's not a bad word, right? It gives the winemaker the tool to express their art, right? And that when, if you have your whole cellar sort of available, you can kind of blend to create something kind of beautiful, right? And that's, you can make an artistic statement about a vintage essentially, or, or what you want to, you know, what your intent is. Uh, so blending is difficult, but also a great part of this art, right? So when you make a wine, what is it you hope someone will get out of your a bottle they open that you've made? Oh, good question. So I think that, you know, the things I look for, uh, like quality indicators for me, are sort of the palette shape of a wine, mm -hmm. how a wine finishes. I think, again, because we're growing Pinot Noir in this very divine place, you know, the, the flavors and all those things should just sort of come and be there, you know, from the vineyard, from the vintage. Essentially, all we can do is sort of get in the way. Um, but that ultimately, like, a quality indicator for me is sort of the shape of a wine. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. You know, fermentation is a huge part of that, right? So fermentation is sort of when we build the frame of the house and then sort of barrel aging is really just the finish work. So you really have to build that frame, I think, during fermentation, you know? And so that's, you know, and especially here now, we're really trying to create delicate wines. So those fermentations, that time in tank is, we reduced it to about 11 or 12 days. So that's an incredibly wow. narrow window that you have to create that. Wow, yeah. But that I think that what sort of distinguishes the white rose wines is that palate shape, that sort of delicate nature of the wines, but that they also have this length and these beautiful finishes. So that's important. That's my quality indicator for the most part. So you mentioned Jesus earlier in the interview. Mm -hmm. You had a, a relationship with Jesus before. Tell me about sort yeah, of getting, I got getting to know, to know him, him through Oregon Pinot Camp, actually, yeah. uh, which was wonderful. So, you know, we were on the uh, winemaking panels there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of great classes. You know, I mean, the, I love Oregon Pinot Camp. That's been an incredible, that's a, such a great Oregon story just right there, right? Um, 
even now doing market work and getting out to different states and running into people who remember you from Pinot Camp, you know, it just, the door is open, right? It opens so many doors. And I think it's the reason that you can sort of go around the country and find an Oregon wine on almost every wine list, right? And you think about how small we are in comparison, right? So we're sort of punching above our weight class, I think, because a lot of these efforts, I mean, it's quality, uh, you know, first and foremost, but ultimately things like Oregon Pinot Camp have really put us on the map, right? So we get to present uh, on the winemaking panels. We presented about whole clusters, so we got to sort of commiserate on that. I got to ask them some questions and sort of see, you know, he's spent years and years sort of perfecting and learning here in the cellar. Uh, you know, I come at it from a sort of academic background, so it's been fascinating to kind of see where he got to from this sort of just mm-hmm. experimental background uh, and the sort of practical A versus B year after year and sort of dialing in this beautiful technique here. And then try, trying to understand that really from my background and understand it from a chemistry perspective, that kind of thing. We'll write whole cluster, obviously White Rose, whole cluster, Jesus, mm-hmm. those are, those, that, that's like a big thing for yeah. White Rose and for Jesus. Yeah. Tell me what, what it is about whole cluster, why, what, it, what it does and why it's important to, the, to hear. So I think a couple things. One is structure. So you're bringing in stem tannin. So having 100% uh, whole cluster, you've got a lot of stem in there uh, and you're bringing a different type of tannin. And so you have a chance to sort of change that palate shape with, mm-hmm. the, with the whole cluster. Uh, and then the other one is just, um, it's an aromatic impact as well, right? And then I think that, especially here in the Dundee Hills, we have heaps of fruit in our Pinot Noirs, and so actually doing the whole cluster fermentation brings a lot of spice and these kind of other elements that I think sort of catch you, sort of, you know, cause you, sort of give you a moment of contemplation maybe, instead of just getting kind of an easy fruit note, you sort of put your nose in there, and that one thing we focus on here is that there's an emotional response to wine, and that, you know, the way that our, our brains work when we when we smell, it sort of takes us to a very primitive part of our brain, and that sort of ties into emotional memory. That's why sort of aromas can sort of light off nostalgic memories. Mm-hmm. So by using whole cluster, I think the idea is that we've got a fair bit of spice in these other things that sort of cause you to just take that moment's pause, and that can light off some of those memories, right? And so that does sort of fire off that emotional response, right? So getting to the point where you can sort of take a glass and put your nose in it and list off 10 different aroma descriptors, you know, that takes a long time. That's a lot of practice because you have to sort of build those wa- that wiring to get from this particular smell to this particular word, but that uh, everyone has a response to wine from an emotional uh, perspective, right? They don't require any sort of training or any sort of lexicon around wine to enjoy it or to know that it sort of makes them feel a particular way. So tell me about how you got to White Rose. Obviously, I kind of know the, the, the tragic part of the story. Tell me yeah. about you getting here and, and the, the next step in your process. So it's one of those things where I think after eight years working with Robert and Anthony that I felt like it was time, you know, that uh, I, I sort of paid my dues but also learned a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and, didn't, you know, again, it, it's important to me to have that sort of... Uh, solid background. So, you know, I, I know that some people you can you can jump into wine without any background whatsoever, right? And you'll usually have some pretty misfires you know, right off the bat, but you can learn it fairly easily, you know, that way. I mean, it's and you know we've had some beautiful, warm, dry, low disease pressure vintages that's made that a little easier, right? Mm-hmm. So from 2014 essentially on up until this year, so it's been fairly easy to make wine in some ways. But I think that ultimately, why you take that time to learn and sort of put that effort in is so that when it's not easy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this year was hard-ish, let's say. So I got and felt like 2019 was kind of like a miniature 2013. So we had a fair bit of rain, you know, before harvest, fruit was slightly compromised. But again, like being able to lean on that experience and know how bad it got in 2013 and then how beautiful the wines were, you know, when it finally came time. Um, 
I think that, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I was ready from that, and that had that sort of background. Uh, so I felt after those eight vintages with Anthony and Robert, it was time. And so then a question just became, what's the right opportunity, right? So I didn't want to jump at just any opportunity. I wanted to make sure it was the right opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so what attracted me to White Rose is that the whole cluster of fermentation is essentially, I think, one of the most difficult ways to make Pinot Noir. Uh, because there's just so many things that work against you, especially before the fermentation. So there's some real challenges there. And again, that's that sort of intellectual challenge, I think, around wine. But that also, because it's such a small estate project, there's a lot of focus there. So, you know, as difficult as it is, when you have much fewer fermentations, you can sort of spend a lot more time with them on a daily basis, right? So, you know, I think it's sometimes it's, you know, working in a larger facility, you spend a little more time sort of just addressing the fermentations that are just yelling for help, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little more triage versus, uh, I think, maybe a little more proactive kind of, mm -hmm. you know, here's what I'm going to do every day with these few wines. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that opportunity to just sort of focus on a, what I thought or what I think is a fairly difficult technique. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, took over Jesus's work after mm -hmm. after his uh, unfortunate pa passing last year. Tell me about what you how you balance sort of trying to feed his legacy and see his wines through versus what you feel like you need to do going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think a big part of it is just always talk about Jesus, right? I think that you know we always. And I, you know, with lost family members, friends, I think that we can always, you know, we can honor them just by talking about them, right? And I think that's an important thing to do just in general. But it's a great opportunity here because I still have lots of his wines and so I can share those wines, talk about Jesus making these wines. And so that's incredibly important. So that's that legacy piece, I think. Like, let's talk about why Jesus did what he did with this particular bottle, what he might have been thinking, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I think that's great, right? Like, talk about that legacy and then also honor it by, you know, continuing on this Process. So I think that, you know, when people ask me what we're going to change style-wise here, I mean, we've already cr we've created a technique that's beautiful. So I'm I'm doing minor minor adjustments, right? And I have no sense of like ego where I need to like stamp a huge change to say like I'm here. This is my wine, right? Mm -hmm. I actually want to try and keep you know really sort of honor the style that we've created here and just try to make sure that we make it as well as we can, right? Mm -hmm. So tiny tiny adjustments, but I don't think you'll notice a huge change from winemaker to winemaker. Mm -hmm. So and that's fine. Did you, does it add any any pressure to you? Do you feel added pressure taking over for someone who was as highly thought of? Of course, success? yeah, absolutely, you know, and that's, uh, you know, but I think every opportunity should terrify you just a little <laughs> bit, right? So, you know, that's a, you know, that's a challenge, right? So challenges are good things. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I, it's mostly, mostly important to me just to honor Jesus, right? And, uh, and to not feel that I need to sort of like, push him to the side or forget about, you know, mm -hmm. and to just freely talk about him and, and sort of, um, and talk about what he did, right? And then honor that by continuing that tradition. So what do you see as you, as you look ahead for White Rose? Uh, now, you're, you're almost a year in here, uh, coming up on your first sort of full vintage here. What, yeah. what do you see as you look down the road for yourself and the project here? So it's an interesting one. I think that, you know, we've had a pretty challenging year between losing Jesus, then we actually had a uh, fire that took out our offices, oh, our, uh, our where, you know, essentially the, far, the barn where we housed all our equipment. So we actually lost all of Jesus's notes, the records. We've, we sort of, we had a hard reset this year. It's been a really hard year, right? Uh, but that you can look at that type of reset as sort of, again, an opportunity to sort of challenge assumptions, let's say. And so I think that one of those assumptions is that we have only made Pinot Noir here for 20 years. Um, is there something else we should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I've been very bullish on Oregon Chardonnay for a long time. And so I think that's one thing we're starting to look at is do we start to change our program a little bit? And so, you know, in, in somewhat, you know, 
I think the main reason, knowing that we now are making world-class Chardonnay here in Oregon, so there's a real appeal there, mm -hmm. you know, and then also that, you know, I think the people that visit Oregon Wine Country want to try something else besides Pinot Noir these days, so, which is not to say, I, you know, I think I'm very, very bullish on Pinot Noir, and I don't want us to ever think about that not being the grape of Oregon, right? But, um, but that there's a little bit of, perhaps a little more diversity and sort of what we offer might be, mm -hmm. might be a change. Do you have any other kind of accomplishment goals as you look five, ten years in the future? Is there anything you want to have accomplished or what Rosie's wants to have accomplished? Yeah, you know, part of the appeal working here too is such a small project that uh, I've taken on other roles. So, you know, I'm managing a tasting room as well. And so, sort of learning a little more about the business side as well on top of winemaking. So, sort of expanding that sort of project management lens, let's say. Um, so, that's a lot to take on. So, so, I kind of want to learn just more of the business side as well, right? So, I think that's important. You know, I think as you get older as a winemaker, it's a fairly physical business, right? So you have to sort of be concerned about what the future looks like, you know, and that's usually just sort of management for the most part. So um, sort of having an eye to that. So learning the whole business side is important to me as well. Uh, but that, you know, I want to be able to, you know, five years from now look back and just pop some corks and some beautiful wines and be very proud of them. You know, ultimately that's the real reward. What about as you look uh, at Oregon wine industry in general? Mm -hmm. well, what, what have you seen? What are the changes you've seen since you've been a part of it? What, what does it look like now versus when you started? Yeah, it's just much larger. Let's say the scale is much. You know, I think about like going to the wine symposium in 2009, and it was in Eugene, and it was these kind of small sort of. Uh, uh, lectures and then there was lots of arguing and everybody, everybody in the room knew each other a lot of just arguing about philosophy and style you know it was a little more sort of just out in the open let's say <laughs> now it's a, you know there's, there's just a lot of unfamiliar faces a lot of new faces uh, everyone's a little more genteel you know we've sort of grown up in a lot of ways um, I guess it's interesting you know I think that you know, especially here, we've got neighbors from California and France moving into the neighborhood, right? And they have for quite some time. But that, um, I think I'm cautiously optimistic about what that means for the Oregon industry. I don't think it's a bad thing, necessarily. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the larger projects will do a good job of sort of, uh, again, just teaching people about Oregon. So, you know, a Willamette Valley blend from a California producer probably has more reach than what we can do here, where we make 2,000 cases. So, if it gets people to think about Oregon wine and then to come visit Oregon, ultimately, we hope they come to these, you know, a small winery and have, a, I think, what is a classic Oregon experience, right? Mm -hmm. That you might run into the owner or the winemaker while you're tasting, you know, get a chance to sort of tour the cellar. You know, that's kind of, there's something nice about that sort of very sort of, you know, this is kind of a beautiful colic area with these tiny with farmers running these tiny businesses right but that is going to change and I think that you know it's also you know you want to be I think sort of look to the south you know look to Sonoma think about where they were 30 years ago or something that might sort of give us some ideas about how things are going to change here right mm -hmm. it's not all bad but it's certainly going to change right so uh, I think that just that and I think that maturation cycle will be much faster this time around right these things will probably happen more quickly you know you already see you know Nicer hotels, restaurants, tour services, these things all sort of just happening, right? So we're sort of maturing as, a, as an industry pretty quickly. So what do you see as you look ahead? Uh, what do you kind of picture the industry looking like in a decade from now? Uh, and maybe what are you kind of concerned about or, or fearful of looking forward? I think that, you know, again, well, I think we're, we're world class. So I don't think anything will sort of go anywhere. I don't think anything's going to change, right? So Oregon Pinot is going to be Oregon Pinot. Um, I think the things that could influence us, you know, I'm always scared of a cultural effect, honestly. I mean, you think about the one thing that sort of put us on the map was the sideways effect, right? So 
what if there was something that eventually sort of uh, vilified Pinot Noir, right? We could see just, you know, suddenly people could be losing their jobs, right? That's like a terrifying thing that could potentially happen, right? It probably won't happen, but, um, but that you never know, right? What, how taste will change, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that we'll, you know, obviously we're going to make sort of a generational tr uh, transition here from boomers to Xers and millennials, right? But I don't know that necessarily that's going to hurt us too much, but we have to be wary of that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we sell $100 bottles of wine, so it might be out of reach for some people, right? So we have to be careful about that. But there's, the reason is because there's quality here. And so, you know, we're world class, so people from around the world are starting to buy Oregon Pinot Noir. So we're just expanding our reach, and maybe that's how we sort of stay okay, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, as you, you mentioned, uh, you're managing the tasting room as mm -hmm. well, as an, uh, just, just another thing to, to, to yeah. throw on the resume there. Uh, tell me about that, that process for you, coming from a background of, of mostly production side. What is that? Absolutely. Like I, I have to say that we have a problem in, you know, back of house where we tend to not respect, I think, the work that the front of house puts in, right? So, you know, we're sitting there, you know, sweating out 12, 16-hour days and, uh, and running home exhausted. But, you know, there's something, you know, there's an art to selling, right? Mm -hmm. And that uh, I think I've really gained that appreciation for what front of house does and how important that is, especially these days, because there are so many more tasting rooms, right? You have so many more options. So it's a challenge, right? Having the same conversation about wine a number of times can really be a drag sometimes. So I really do respect the ability of folks to sell our wines. You know, I've come around on that quite a bit. So I think we have, there's a kind of trap we fall into on the winemaking side of like, I made a great wine and it'll, it'll sell itself, <laughs> right? But that's, doesn't always happen, right? We've got millions of cases of Oregon wine out there now, so uh, it has to be more than just I made a great wine, right? So, you know, a lot of it's a story driven now. I mean, we talked about social media early, earlier. You think about sort of wineries sort of getting a little more wise about social media, you know? So selling is huge, right? You know, telling the story. And that's, you know, ultimately we have this chance. I mean, you're going to collect wonderful stories about Oregon wine, right? And that's a powerful draw for people. So, story is important. Uh, experience is important. We focus on a great experience here. So, it's a very cozy, sort of welcoming atmosphere here. And then we just start a conversation. So we don't sort of sit down and just like, here's 10 descriptors of what you're going to smell in this glass. We have a conversation about why we made this wine, how we think it might make you feel, but tell us how you, you know. And if you want to get into the, into the weeds of, you know, the pH, all these different, you know, technical detail, details, we'll get there. But let's just have a conversation about wine and enjoy wine together. You mentioned the changing generations there. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel like... Uh, wine consumers are asking different questions than they were before, or looking for different things from you as as winemaker slash seller. Question? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, I know that that sort of that thought exists out mm -hmm. there. You know, that story is much more important than it used to be. But I still think you know, I see you know, we see a pretty bro uh, broad swath of ages. You know, and I feel like those conversations are not fundamentally different generation to generation, right? So. If you're 75 and you've been drinking wine for 45 years or something, and if you're 30 and still, you know, you've just, you got your, you're finally getting a little bit of money to spend on wine, I, the conversation is not too different, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm buying the, the generational uh, schisms, let's say, but, um, <laughs> but that ultimately, like the people that come here, uh, they're attracted to the culture of wine, right? So it usually means that they like food, they like, they like wine, and usually that sort of, I think sort of grows out to like a general worldview, right? So a sort of curiosity about the world outside of what you know, right? And that's what I love about the wine industry, right? Is that it brings a lot of people with that same worldview together, right? So there's a lot of cultural sort of sharing here. Um, you think about Oregon these days, you know, uh, over the last few years, especially huge, uh, huge demand for people from 
other countries to come here and work harvest with us. Mm -hmm. So a lot more international flavor mm -hmm. in our um, in our harvest crews. Um, last year at Britain, three of the four interns we had were from other countries. So mm -hmm. we had a girl from Bordeaux. Uh, and two gentlemen from Australia and New Zealand, right? So there's a lot of a lot of demand to get here. I've seen saw a lot of Italian, French, German, and South African interns roll through here during harvest uh, while they were just out tasting and learning more about Oregon. So, you know, you, then you go to the Bitter Monk and you, you're hearing people speak in French or German, whatever it is. You know, there's just a lot more going on. I think from the world outside, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are in our tiny little Oregon town. You know, and I grew up in Oregon in very small towns. So I have a certain expectation for what you should get from kind of from a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. from a small Oregon town, and, and here you are in McMinnville, and it's this wonderful crossroads, right? And that there are people from outside of the world, and that and so many folks in the wine industry have backgrounds in food or these sorts of things, you know, just so many different industries. So, we're, you know, we're, we're focused on this kind of wonderful cultural exchange of food, wine, all these different things. So uh, that's important to me. To, and I think it's a great part of, of McMinnville, right? That's mm -hmm. what's made it such an interesting place to live. Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions that I have for okay. today. Is there anything yeah, yeah. I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover? We um, no, I think that's, you know, it's, I think the other great thing, it's funny, I, I thought about it earlier when I was talking about just, you know, Pinot Noir, whether that's the grape we should be growing or not. I mean, ultimately it is because we know that this is a world-class place. But, like, that doesn't mean that we're not, you know, there aren't, you know, you're sort of free from constraint, right? There's so many different ways to make it. I think that's what we celebrate a lot is just that, you know, we're making a lot of different expressions of Oregon Pinot. We're still just learning about our sites and where, you know, how, you know, certain sites express, whether they're the right for, you know, they're right for this particular clone of Pinot or, you know. So there's still so much to learn that it's, you know, I think we're just, we're still decades out, right? So we know it's Pinot Noir. We're going to explore other grapes. There's going to be all kinds of esoteric varieties planted, and that's fine. But that ultimately, like, we've, we've set out on this path to find out what Oregon can do with Pinot Noir. And, you know, we still, we still have lots of questions to answer, right? So, you know, and I think that the great thing is that we all, that conversation is happening very freely, right? So the great, that's the other great part about Oregon. And we all, always talk about it. I'm sure you'll hear it a million times in these interviews is that, you know, we spend a lot of time sharing technique with each other, sharing results of experiments, tasting with each other, being very open about what we're doing so that we can all kind of get better together. You know, I think that's pretty important. So I don't know that that's going to necessarily change as, as the market changes and as we sort of have these outside influences, but, you know, I do kind of worry that we might lose a little of that as, as the market matures and becomes more competitive. I hope that we can kind of remember that we're all in this together and, and be very open with each other still and, and sharing process, technique, that kind of thing. You mentioned all the all the newcomers from from California, from France. We hear, obviously yeah. hear a lot about them in our interviews. Yeah. Uh, how, how is that integration going in terms of is is it still that kind of collaborative with the kind of big Absolutely. money? Absolutely, yeah, in? yeah. To their credit, you know, I think that uh, uh, a lot of the folks that are coming to Oregon are respecting the Oregon way. Let's say. Um, so I think that, you know, even, you know, and I have friends working at companies that are California-owned now, and to their credit, they're making more money, and they're getting better benefits, right? So it's not all bad. Uh, but that, uh, my only worry is, I think that, you know, it's, again, it's just part of this, how things are changing, is that, you know, it used to be in Oregon, you could be a kind of a, a tiny little label, you didn't need a vineyard, you really didn't even need barely a production facility, you just needed a couple of macro bins, you could go from there, and you should get some pretty pristine fruit from very special places. You know, I think that, 
as some of these top tier vineyards are purchased, you know, the walls are going to go up, right? Mm -hmm. And so those, those sources aren't available. So uh, we don't squeeze out the really tiny producers with that. You know, it just, it just means less access to really good vineyards and you can't fake that, right? So once that vineyard's offline, um, it was, you know, it's gone, right? So you can't fake it by just going to somewhere slightly close to that or whatever. So um, I worry about sort of the small guy and the ability to get you know, fruit from essentially top tier Oregon vineyards, right? So it's a, and that's a minor concern in some ways, I guess, but it is, it's gonna change, right? So you know, the walls will go up around some of the best vineyards in Oregon and that just, that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you thank so you. much for your time today. Yeah, of course. For sharing yeah. your stories and your thoughts. Yeah. And uh, we'll go ahead and uh, let you off the hook. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.